0: The following message was given at Emmanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. We're going to pray and we are going to jump into our study of the Confession of Faith. So let's pray together. Lord, we are grateful once again to be together on your day amongst your people to study your word and to worship our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for the gift that you have given us, the gift of worship the gift of your word, the gift of your spirit, the gift of your son. And we pray that you'd be honored in everything that we seek to do today, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, and that we would find our greatest joy and satisfaction in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for this Sunday school hour that it would be beneficial to all of us, that we continue to grow in our understanding of your word and the practice of the church We pray, Lord, for all of our students, our young people, that you would bless them also in this time as they continue to learn the things of God, that you would work in their hearts, that they would hear your gospel, and that they would believe. We pray, Lord, that you would always be at work in their lives and that uh, they would all know that Christ is the greatest treasure they could have in this life. And so we pray for your blessing on everything today. We have much to celebrate, and we give you thanks and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are moving into chapter 29 of Baptism. And uh, we still have part of chapter 26 to finish up, but we do have uh, baptism today, so I wanted to uh, focus on baptism. Um, I don't know that we will make it all the way through this chapter today, but we are going to give it a try and see where we can go. So chapter 29 of our confession on baptism. There's four paragraphs. The first will tell us the purpose of baptism. The second, dealing with the recipients. Third, the formula. And fourth, the mode. So chapter 29, of course, comes as no surprise uh, that this is in our confession of faith because we are uh, Baptists. However, its similarity to portions of the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration are stronger than one might assume. And in fact, Uh, One of our Reformed Baptist brothers has written a book um, and he deals with the fact that the Westminster Confession of Faith on baptism uh, actually uh, necessitates uh, a position of believer's baptism. Um, So uh, it's it's an interesting comparison. We don't have time to uh, make that this morning, but it's worth your time to go and look at that. But paragraphs one and three of our confession, share substantial agreement with the Westminster. Uh, there's some wording that's different, but the uh, the meaning is essentially the same. Paragraphs two and four highlight the distinctives of credo-baptist theology when compared to Beto, uh, paedo-baptism. So those words, credo is a Latin verb meaning "I believe." So, believers baptism and "pado" means boy or girl, and so that's implying a, a child. Uh, so, the difference being a child or infant baptism versus believers baptism, uh, which we believe. Uh, the ordinance of baptism was so controversial and hotly debated. Uh, that uh, the writers of our confession included an appendix on baptism to further explain their position beyond what we see in these four paragraphs. And so I will make reference to that appendix a few times. And uh, further, the particular Baptists sought to distance themselves from other groups that they were accused of being a part of, like the Anabaptists and the General Baptists, and the Quakers, all of them holding different views on the meaning of baptism. And so, uh, what we will, we'll see that in paragraph one. Uh, but they did write this in their appendix. They said, Let it not therefore be judged of us, because much hath been written on the subject. And yet we continue this, our practice, different from others, that it is out of obstinacy, but rather the truth is that we do, according to the best of our understanding, worship God out of a pure mind, yielding obedience to his precept in that method which we take to be most agreeable to the scriptures of truth and primitive practice. And so, The great concern of the particular Baptists was that they not be viewed as being intentionally uh, oppositional amongst all of the other Reformed churches. And so they wanted to show we have substantial agreement, hence why they patterned our confession after the Westminster. They wanted to show they weren't trying to be be radical in their opposition to positions that were uh, not the same. But at the end of the day, saying we are beholden to the word of God, this is what we believe the scriptures teach, and so we need to be honest about that. But they said, Whoever, whosoever reads and impartially considers what we have in our forging confession, declaring, uh, may readily perceive that we do not only consent with all other true Christians on the word of God as the foundation and rule of our faith and worship, but that we also industriously endeavored to manifest that in the fundamental articles of Christianity, we mind the same things and have therefore expressed our belief in the same words that have on the like occasion been spoken by other societies of Christians before us. And so they didn't want to be oppositional if they didn't have to be. And in fact, at this period of time, to be a Baptist in England was a dangerous thing. Uh, they suffered great persecution as a result of it, and so uh, to you know to us we think oh baptism and and we may have Pado Baptist friends and we go back and forth and and uh, sometimes that's in a fun joking manner, but to these guys at times it was a, literally a matter of life and death, and so this paragraph comes at great cost to them, having written it at their time, so. Let's look at the particulars. We'll get into paragraph one, dealing with the purpose of baptism. And our confession says, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him, in his death and resurrection of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sins, and of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So baptism as an ordinance we looked at in chapter 28 in the language of ordinance um, or sacrament and how those are generally interchangeable. But paragraph one adds this additional description of the ordinance being derived from the New Testament and ordained by Jesus Christ. So our confession agrees with the wording of the Westminster and the Savoy. However, the meaning that is to be derived from this statement differs significantly. Pado baptist theology attempts to connect baptism to Old Covenant circumcision to justify the baptism of infants in the same way that male Israelites were circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. However, the Baptists sought to identify that baptism is a uniquely New Testament practice ordained by Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism must be understood from the New Testament alone and should not be understood to be in connection with anything in the Old Covenant. And we will see uh, how they come to that conclusion. So in Colossians chapter 2, Verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul writes, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from So in the Colossae context, Paul was dealing in part with the false teaching of Gnosticism, which taught that there is an inherent evil in physical matter. And so he addresses circumcision to identify the error uh, that the physical act of circumcision would provide a greater separation from the supposed evils that existed in the world. As far as the Gnostics were concerned, uh, circumcision was a consecration ritual, and that was used to prove one's sincerity and faithfulness. However, Paul comes at this and shows that circumcision was an old covenant practice that was done away with in the new covenant. In addition to the obvious conclusion that God Commanded it, circumcision was an important practice in the Old Covenant because it served as a shadow of the greater reality of the circumcision of the heart. If a person's heart is circumcised, to circumcise the flesh would be needlessly redundant. And so every believer in Christ, whether they are ethnically Jewish or whether they are Gentile, is circumcised in the heart once they are regenerated. And this circumcision, Paul writes, is made without hands. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so there is no continuity between Old Covenant circumcision and New Covenant baptism. The continuity is between Old Covenant circumcision of the flesh and New Covenant circumcision of the heart. And so Paul's explanation refers here to the death of Christ, and provides a metaphor. Christ's crucifixion was not the removal of a small piece of flesh, but the entirety of his physical body. And so believers are united to Christ and share spiritually in his circumcision uh, in in that their hearts will be circumcised. And so the believer's sinful nature is cut away And he dies to the former way of life. In other words, the old man is put to death and the result is a new life. And Paul emphasizes this reality by pointing to the ordinance of baptism. One commentator says, As the burial of Christ set the seal upon his death, so the Colossians' burial with him in baptism shows that they were truly involved in his death and laid in his grave. It is not as though they simply died like Jesus died or were buried as he was laid in the tomb. The burial proves that a real death has occurred and the old life is now a thing of the past. And praise God for that. The Apostle Paul explains further. He says in Romans chapter 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And the newness of the Christian life, one having been buried and raised together with Christ, it serves as an acknowledgement that the believer no longer has any obligation to serve sin. Paul explains again in Romans 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Death, however, must be followed by resurrection. And so Paul continues, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And so Paul's argument is not most immediately tied to the practice of water baptism, but rather to the issue of union with Christ. However, water baptism is is the proper sign that is administered to signify that a believer has been united to Christ in his death and his resurrection. And so baptism is a means of grace whereby the person who is being baptized, as our confession states, is a sign of his fellowship with Christ in his death and resurrection. And so Christ experienced a physical death and burial and resurrection And those united to Christ experience a spiritual death and burial of the old man and a resurrection into new life in Christ. And it is signified by the ordinance of water baptism. Now when a believer is resurrected to new life in Christ, baptism signifies that that she as a confession identifies as being engrafted into Christ. And so Paul writes in Galatians 3: For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And so the practice of baptism reminds the believer of what has happened, of our being engrafted into Christ, and also makes a public proclamation that the believer is now united to Christ. And so. While baptism itself as a practice is very important, that is not the basis of our union with Christ. It is a visible, tangible sign of that which has taken place as a result of our heart being circumcised by the Holy Spirit. And so William Perkins comments, Baptism must put us in mind that we are admitted and received into the family of God And consequently, that we must carry ourselves as the servants of God. And just by the way, these commentators that I'm quoting here are all Pado baptists And so um, you start to see some inconsistencies come to light. So when a believer is baptized, he's receiving a means of grace. That is, his spiritual union with Christ is identified, and then baptism serves as the instrument through which the Lord dispenses his grace into the hearts of his people for their sanctification. Baptism is also a means of grace for everyone who witnesses the baptism of others. It serves as a reminder that the work, the, of the work that God has done in our own lives, and, and it, it was signified in our own baptism. And when that's coupled with an ever-growing understanding of all that God has done in our lives as we make progress in the Christian life, uh, it is, it is a, a wonderful encouragement and we gain deeper and more uh, powerful um, uh, expression of uh, Christ in our lives, And we're encouraged to be all the more faithful in living out the implications of the fact that we are united to Christ. And so when we witness baptism, as we're going to do today, we remember this is also a means of grace for us as we witness this. And part of it is to remind us of what Christ has done for us as we also pass through those baptismal waters. The confession also mentions the remission of sins. The Nicene Creed confesses that Christians believe in one baptism for the remission of sins. Now at the conclusion of the Apostle Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, we read that uh, last week from Acts, the text says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls." In like manner, when describing his own baptism, the Apostle Paul recounts his uh, conversation with Ananias, who said to him, And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now, Peter and Paul did not mean that baptism is the means by which God would grant the forgiveness of their sins. If this were the case, it would stand in stark contrast to the teaching of justification by faith in the rest of the Bible. The very teaching that both apostles uh, highlighted significantly in their epistles, and especially uh, the apostle Paul. Now instead, the apostles highlighted the need for repentance so that one might be cleansed from all sin in the blood of Christ as Uh, as well as the immediacy of baptism. And so the only proper response when one is regenerated is that they be baptized. This was the point being raised by the apostles. Christians must guard against the error of what we call baptismal regeneration. In other words, that being baptized is the means by which we are regenerated or that we become Christians. Otherwise, we would do damage to the gospel itself. So baptism is a sign that signifies or it, it symbolizes the washing away of sins, but it is not the efficient cause. It is not the cause of remission of sins for us. And so the intent of the confession should be understood as water baptism signifying but not being the cause of the washing away of our sins. It also goes on to talk about the living and walking in the newness of life. The Baptist Catechism question 101 says, What is the duty of such who are rightly baptized? And the answer is, It is the duty of such who are rightly baptized to give up themselves to some particular and orderly church of Jesus Christ, that they may walk in the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. Now this reflects similar language um, of the confession that says, baptism to be unto the party baptized of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in the newness of life. And so this is a time in a Christian's life where he draws a line in the sand and he's making a public declaration and saying, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And The life that I live in the body, is uh, I live in the flesh, is is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. This is Paul's declaration in Galatians chapter 2. And so our baptism is a public declaration saying, I am making an intentional commitment to live a life pleasing to the Lord because he has regenerated me. He has circumcised my heart. He has brought me into the family of God. And it's also a a recognition that we are able to do all that God commands us to do because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. I'm no longer obligated to sin because of what Christ has Accomplish. And so I can live and walk in the newness of life. So that's paragraph one on the purpose of baptism. So now you get into something a bit more controversial for the particular Baptists as they deal with the Paedo-Baptists, and that is the recipients of baptism. The Confession says, Those who do actually profess repentance towards God faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. Again, our uh, catechism in question 98 says, to whom is baptism to be administered? And the answer, baptism is to be administered to all who actually profess repentance toward God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ and to none other. Other, And so the recipients of baptism, along with the mode of baptism, how we baptize, we get to that later, are two primary differences that exist between credo Baptist and Patobaptists. The Westminster Confession says not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So, Baptists reject this notion that the baptism of infants and their subsequent membership into Christ's church is found anywhere in Scripture, either explicitly or, as the Pado baptists appeal to their confession, that says, by good and necessary consequence. If baptism is what the Savoy Declaration and the Westminster Confession say it is, it cannot simultaneously be for infants. And so, they, uh, as, as they work through this, the, the Reformed Pado baptists rightly reject baptismal regeneration, and yet see no contradiction in claiming that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, to be unto the person being baptized, a sign and a seal of regeneration of remission of sins, and his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in the newness of life. Well, if that's what baptism is, then how do you baptize an infant? Now, many, not all, Baptists also reject the idea of what's called presumptive Regeneration. That is the idea that uh, Christian uh, parents can presume that their child will be saved as a result of their being a covenant child. In other words, their parents are Christians, and so they're in the new covenant, and the child of them is called a covenant child. But then what remains? If it's not actually regenerating them, and you're not presuming they will be regenerated, what remains? Well, children, it is argued, are to be considered sinners, but also holy because they belong to a covenant family. And so they have membership within the church, so all the children in a Pado-Baptist church, if their parents are members of the church, so are the children, and they receive the sign of the covenant, which to them is baptism, and they are exposed to the means of grace. Many paedobaptists claim that baptism is performed on the basis of the promises of God and not the regeneration of the child. There is no presumption that they will be regenerated, but they are also to be back- baptized in recognition of the promises that are for believers and also presumed to be for the children of their household. Well, the writers of the London Baptist Confession respond to these claims regarding household baptism in the New Testament. And here's what they say. The arguments and inferences that are usually brought for or against infant baptism from those few instances where the scriptures afford us that whole families were being baptized are only conjectural and therefore cannot of themselves be conclusive on either hand. So I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 18 and verse 8, uh, it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, this is, a, this is to be an example of what is called a household baptism. Crispus believed and his household was baptized. However, it is of particular importance to note that the text first highlights that Crispus believed in the Lord together with his entire household. In other words, a straightforward reading of the text indicates that the household believed. They became disciples, and the result was that along with many of the Corinthians, they were then baptized. The appendix on baptism I mentioned earlier in our confession says, Although we do find by church history that paedobaptism has been a very ancient practice. We cannot, for our own parts, be persuaded in our own minds to build such a practice as this upon an unwritten tradition, but do rather choose in all points of faith and worship to have recourse in the Holy Scriptures for the information of our judgment and regulation of our practice." being well assured that a conscientious attending on to is the best way to prevent and rectify our defects and errors and so on the basis of finding no scriptural warrant for the practice of pedobaptism our confession concludes that those who do actually profess repentance toward god faith in and obedience to our lord jesus christ are the only proper subjects of this Ordinance. Now, notice, of course, infants are incapable of professing repentance toward God and having faith and living obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, therefore not being the proper recipients of baptism. Now, prior to his ascension, Jesus instituted the ordinance of baptism. And what did he say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them. So a disciple is one who is a student or a pupil uh, or a, a learner. This derives from a verb that means to learn. And so in the early classical period, it was used of a learner in a general sense, such as one who was an adherent of a great teacher or a specific school of teaching, or more technically as an institutional pupil of Uh, at the time, of the the sophists. But later on, the term was still in use, and it it became uh, something that is obviously used quite frequently in the scriptures. And so if the pattern described by Jesus is to be followed, in other words, make disciples and then baptize them, the definition of a disciple calls into question the practice of pedo baptism John only baptized disciples who repented of their sins. Very helpful statement, it's lengthy here, but from uh, Sam Waldron, he says this, those things which qualified someone for Old Testament privileges do not qualify one for baptism. Plainly, those who had been properly circumcised did not automatically qualify for John's baptism. Just as plainly, Having received circumcision did not make it unnecessary to receive John's baptism. Clearly, being a natural descendant of Abraham did not qualify one for circumcision, even though every male descendant of Abraham was commanded to be circumcised. It is inconceivable that John would have denied baptism to the natural seed of Abraham, but give it to the uh, natural seed of every believer as Pato baptists teach. Unquestionably, John's baptism was only in, was intended only for those who took up the demands of discipleship and repentance which he preached. It was for believers only. Now John writes, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only The disciples. So Jesus was baptizing in the sense that the disciples were doing so under his direction and authority. In other words, Jesus had oversight as the uh, disciples were performing the ordinance of baptism, but there is no scriptural proof that he himself was doing the baptisms. And nevertheless, the significant details are that Jesus was making and baptizing what? disciples. Disciples became disciples, and then they were baptized. The apostolic formula presented in the New Testament also gives us significant weight to the argument for baptism of disciples alone. As previously mentioned, the apostle Peter preached and said, repent and be baptized. And the result was those who received his word were baptized. The apostle Paul told Ananias, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Paul connects baptism to faith in writing to the Colossians. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, There are simply no biblical examples of anyone other than a disciple being baptized in the New Testament. Nor is there any clear New Testament teaching that baptism is in any way related to the Old Covenant practice of circumcision. Baptism is a declaration that the one who is being baptized has placed his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is thereby united to Christ in his death and resurrection. He is engrafted into Christ's body. He's had his sins forgiven and has been raised to new life in Christ as a disciple. In order for this declaration to be in fact and not presumptive, the party being baptized must give cre- credible evidence of having been regenerated. And so, while this is a, uh, throughout the history of the church, has been a controversial subject, the the uh, particular Baptists really believed, and I believe, that they were simply um, continuing the work of reformation. All right, so... Pado-baptism being uh, an ancient practice, although believer's baptism has been proven to be an ancient practice as well, and uh, most likely predating the baptism of infants, um, the belief was that this was a Roman Catholic practice that was sort of held over into the Reformation, and although the meaning of it changed from Roman Catholicism, the practice itself had not And so the particular Baptists were saying, we're going to continue reforming um, and bring this into uh, alignment with what we see in the scriptures. So there you go. You have plenty to um, go back and forth with your Paedo-Baptist friends on now. All right. Third paragraph, the formula of baptism. The outward element to be used in this ordinance is water, wherein the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Reformed Christians and their confessions all identify that water is the proper outward element to be utilized in baptism. And so there is a nearly unanimous consensus across all Christian traditions. There are instances of various outliers who rejected physical water baptism as a proper administration of the ordinance. Jim Renahan notes, some 17th century Englishmen rejected the idea of physical water baptism. John Saltmarsh serves as an example. In his book, "Sparkles of Glory," he wrote, "The baptism of water was a legal washing, and therefore reckoned among things that are legal. The first tabernacle stood in meat and drinks and divers washings and carnal ordinances, which diverse washing, washings are called baptism in the Greek." He acknowledged that John's baptism was with water and that Jewish converts were baptized in water, but claimed that this passed away as the gospel went to the Gentiles. There's also a teaching, as a very small group, but um, uh, what are classified as hyper-dispensationalists who believe that baptism is, uh, is not a practice for the New Testament church, for Gentiles, uh, because... Um, the only binding things that are in the scripture for the New Testament church are the writings of the Apostle Paul, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles, and therefore baptism was a practice reserved for uh, the early church and for the Jews, but it does not apply uh, to the Gentiles. So we would certainly reject that as well. Nevertheless, one of the things that baptism signifies is a washing away of sins, to which the Apostle Peter remarks, is not for the purpose of a removal of dirt from the body. John the Baptist said, I baptize with water. The Gospel writer explains, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Matthew records John the Baptist again saying, I baptize you with water. And he explains that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. When Philip told an Ethiopian eunuch the good news about Jesus that he believed, the scriptures say, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, every instance in the, uh, of physical baptism in the New Testament is associated with Water, So baptism must be conducted in water. Now, it also deals with the Trinitarian element of this. When Jesus commanded the apostles to baptize disciples, he provided the formula in which it was to be conducted. He said, again, "...go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit." And so this Trinitarian formula is an acknowledgement that all three members of the Trinity participate in a believer's salvation. The Father decrees and elects who will be saved from before the foundation of the world. The Son accomplishes all that is necessary for salvation. And the Holy Spirit applies the work to the believer's account. But it's it's significant that Jesus' command states that a disciple is to be baptized in the name, singular, the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not names of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here we have three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal persons of the Trinity, and they are one true living God who saves sinners. James White comments, we see then why baptism is in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit and why it is so important. Because this is baptism in the name of our God, the triune God we worship and serve and adore, the triune God who has saved us, the Father, source of all, eternally gracious, the Son, Redeemer, who left the glory of heaven to save his sheep. Spirit, indwelling comforter who makes the truths of the Christian faith alive in our hearts. What other name would we wish to bear than the triune name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Now there are at least four instances in the New Testament that call on believers to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Some heretical groups like Oneness Pentecostalism hold to a position that a person should only be baptized in the name of Jesus, claiming that the Trinitarian formula is invalid because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not names, but rather titles. This is consistent with the false oneness doctrine called modalism that denies a permanent distinction between the persons of the Trinity. And so, in essence, they believe that God takes on various modes. If God is in the mode of the Father, he is not simultaneously the Son and the Holy Spirit, and you can go around the circle with that. Now, while it may appear that the text in the, uh, in the book of Acts gives warrant to reject the Trinitarian formula for baptism, we have to note that the passages are descriptive of a person's new identity of Christ and not a narrative on the formula of baptism. In other words, none of the texts that talk about baptizing in the name of Jesus said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus while administering the ordinance. The people were being baptized on the basis of their identity with Jesus and his authority in their life. The only recorded formula to conduct baptism that is given is Jesus' explicit command in Matthew chapter 18 uh, tw- excuse me 28 and verse 19. <clears throat> something here from uh, church history, uh, the Didache is one of the earliest known treatises on the uh, practice of the early church from the first or second century. Here's what was going on in the, the earliest uh, documents we have of the church apart from scripture. They said, now concerning baptism, baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in running water. But if you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you're not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. I love that. You gotta Preferably cold, but if not, warm will do. <laughs> But if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so it appears that the church took the Trinitarian formula of baptism seriously, even suggesting that the absence of water for one to be lowered into, the baptized subject should have it poured on their head three times, indicating that the baptism is in the name of all three members of the Trinity. All right, last paragraph. I've got a few minutes here. The mode of baptism. Immersion or dipping of the person in water is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. Now, there are at least three modes of water baptism that have been practiced in Christian churches. Immersion, which the Baptists believe, is that in which a person is completely submerged into a body of water. Effusion is where water is poured on a person's head. And aspersion is where water is simply sprinkled. The London Baptist Confession identifies that immersion or dipping is the only proper mode of baptism and states that the mode is necessary to the due administration of this ordinance. In other words, if you are not immersed, you are not rightly considered baptized. The Savoy and the Westminster Confession state that dipping of the person into the water is not necessary, but baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water onto the person. So, paedobaptists believe that effusion or aspersion signifies um, the Holy Spirit coming upon or falling down or being poured out on believers. And so it's not even, as we believe, a a physical representation of our death and resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit being poured out on the person. And so when the Holy Spirit falls upon a believer, it means that he is regenerating the person's heart, and he's working faith within him, and this is a proper understanding of what it means to be baptized by the Holy Spirit— and so, Paedobaptists baptists argue that baptism uh, with water should imitate the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The problem, of course, is that the Greek word translated baptize means to dip or to immerse. And so since baptism as an ordinance is said in the scriptures to represent a Christian spiritual union with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection and not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the only proper physical picture of that union is signified in full immersion into and being brought up out of the water. Whenever baptism is described in the New Testament, the one being baptized is described as going into the water and not having it poured or sprinkled upon them. For example, after Jesus was baptized, it says he came up out of the water. When the Ethiopian eunuch was baptized by Philip, they both went down into the water. Now, arguments will be made. Well, that just means that they were standing in the water and then they were coming out of the water or they they were on a road and they had to go down to the water. Well, that's not really what the text says, is it? He came up out of the water and went down into the water. As previously noted from the, the Didache, the practice of the early church was immersion. With effusion, remember it said that if you have to, practice effusion, it's reserved for occasions when immersion was impossible because of a lack of a sufficient water source or for individuals who were too sick uh, or physically unable to be immersed. And so the historical record confirms that immersion was the normal practice of the church, while the other modes were reserved for exceptional circumstances uh, dealing with health and physical ability. So, I made it. I didn't think we'd make it. So thanks for hanging with me there. I hope that was helpful. And as we uh, as we look to a baptism today, a good refresher for all of us of what is being represented and how this is provided as a means of grace, not only for the party being baptized, but for all of us as we witness baptism. We're reminded of our union with Christ. We're reminded of our uh, our forgiveness in Christ and that we are truly walking and living in the newness of life. What a tremendous blessing the Lord has given to us as we observe this ordinance today. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org That's ebcfl.org